You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. You're super busy, always zipping around, but it won't help to stop the earth and get off. The whole universe is in motion down to its last atom. Stick around and find out why you can never be at rest, even sitting still and what this means for the passage of time and the fate of the cosmos. It's moving right along on Big Picture Science. Hi, I'm Seth Shostak, and I'm walking along the sidewalk to the parking lot about uh, three or four miles an hour, which is a pretty decent clip, at least for me. And uh, this is Molly Bentley on my bicycle. I'm traveling at about 10 miles an hour. And I could go faster, of course, if I wanted. (laughs) It's good that I'm wearing this helmet because uh, holding this microphone as I bike is probably not the safest thing I could do. Hi, me again. I'm gonna make this one short. I'm now in my car, I'm going about 70 miles an hour. And uh, that makes me about the slowest vehicle on the road. Okay, signing off. Motion defines our lives. Doing things is what existence is about. Think about how many times we use fast and slow to describe events in our lives. It's already 9 p.m. Wow, Alvin. Time on our first date is zipping by so fast. Yeah, it's moving like a rocket ship. A rocket ship that's been decommissioned and collecting dust in a hangar somewhere. What? I said, want to get a hangar burger? I mean hamburger? (laughs) Fast and slow are just two adjectives to describe motion. And the entire cosmos is in motion, down to its atoms and yours. Welcome to Big Picture Science, where we step back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology. And in this hour, why even things that look static are in a hurry of a flurry. You, your coffee cup the most distant parts of the cosmos. But coming closer to Earth for a moment, sometimes motion has dramatic and life-threatening consequences. Hawaii doesn't get hit with hurricanes often, but it ran into double trouble recently when two tropical cyclones developed off its shores. As Hurricanes Izel and Julio approached, the situation looked bleak. One hurricane is bad. What destruction would two bring? Would they combine to create one monster whirlwind? And why couldn't meteorologists be certain what would happen? What did happen is that Isel and Julio passed the island chain with little incident. One avoided it altogether, and the other hit with minimal damage. So this raises the question of why hurricane prediction is such an uncertain enterprise. I mean, if I see someone throw a baseball at 80 miles an hour, I'm pretty certain where it will be a second or two later. But do you know to get out of the way? (laughs) My mom taught me that. The dynamics of hurricanes, on the other hand, are complex. The storms swirl in a vortex, and then the whole thing moves across ocean and land. Mike Smith, a meteorologist and senior vice president of AccuWeather Enterprise Solutions, says that all of this, combined with the infrequency of hurricanes making land in Hawaii, made these twin storms a challenge. The last direct hit of a hurricane on Hawaii was 1992. So when you're dealing with something that occurs every 10 to 25 years, we don't have a lot of experience doing it. And so we don't know how well our tools will or won't work. Well, it gets into the question of how one predicts the behavior or anticipates what hurricanes will do in general. And is it an exact science? Oh, heavens no. We have more tools in the Atlantic Basin. The U.S. Air Force and NOAA have Hurricane Hunter aircraft that we fly into the center of hurricanes, 
and NOAA has a jet that they fly around Hurricane, dropping instruments that allow us to do a better job of assessing how strong the hurricane is and what the surrounding atmosphere is so we can make a better prediction as to its future strength and location. In the Pacific, we don't have the Hurricane Hunter aircraft. Now, they did reposition some as a cell moved toward Hawaii, but we don't have the quality of measurements over the Pacific that we do over the Atlantic, and so that made a cell even more of a forecast challenge. To what degree does the movement of hurricanes make them difficult to predict? Well, hurricanes are moved in much the way a floating block of wood would move in a river. Hurricanes have no method for steering themselves. They are steered by the atmospheric currents around them. The problem is after a period of time, especially after a hurricane has strengthened, it begins to influence that river of air around it. And so we use extremely sophisticated computer models that take up some of the most powerful supercomputers in the world. And even then, it takes five to six hours to get a forecast of what a hurricane is going to do over the next three to five days. So it's extremely complex atmospheric science, physics, and mathematics that are needed to try to forecast where a hurricane's going to go. Now, there are two movements in hurricanes, the, the lateral movement or the movement over the ocean and so forth, but then there is also that, that vortex. Where does a, a hurricane get that vortex shape? Well, it's, it's typical atmospheric Coriolis force. Coriolis effect is the tendency of air to turn as it's moving out of a high-pressure center near the ground or into a low-pressure system. And in the northern hemisphere, the air tends to turn in a counterclockwise direction as it spins into a low. The center of a hurricane has lower pressure than the surrounding atmosphere, so it turns in a counterclockwise direction when the air converges at the center of the low pressure area, it rises and it forms what we call an eye in a hurricane. It's a well-known process. We understand the basics, but sometimes the subtleties of how that eye in the hurricane forms can have a big difference in how the storm is eventually going to move. Now, Hawaii had not seen a hurricane in um, for at least a couple decades, and these two hurricanes were converging on the island, and meteorologists weren't quite sure what they were going to do, Isel and Julio. Was there any chance that the two would have combined to create one great big superstorm or cancel each other out? Or does it work that way? It, it doesn't exactly work that way. They wouldn't cancel each other out. In the case of the storm upon which the book The Perfect Storm was based, you had a low-pressure system and a hurricane combined. And during Hurricane Sandy, you had a low-pressure system and a hurricane combined. So low-pressure systems and hurricanes can combine. I'm not aware, at least during my lifetime, of two hurricanes combining, but it is theoretically possible more likely, the two would do a dance around themselves called a Fujiwara effect. That's when two low-pressure systems influence each other's movement. I don't think there's either theoretically or in actuality a situation where two hurricanes would cancel each other out. This is just a question out of the, out of the blue, out of the blue sky, although in this case it would be the darkening skies. What happens if a hurricane comes across a, a tornado? Does the tornado just get absorbed up into the hurricane? No, actually it's the other way around. Hurricanes spawn tornadoes, and there have been individual hurricanes that have spawned more than 100 individual tornadoes. And one of the challenges meteorologists face is sometimes when you have a really prolific tornado-producing hurricane, it can be very difficult to warn of those tornadoes because they're relatively short-lived, five to ten minutes on average, rather than a giant Great Plains tornado that's relatively stable and somewhat easier to warn of. And so you can have destructive tornadoes spawned by hurricanes, and every once in a while you get some fatalities from a hurricane-caused tornado. 
hurricanes are described in terms of their category one, two, three, four, and five, and that is determined by their wind speed. What kind of wind speed can be achieved in hurricanes, and, and what kind of energy are we talking about? Well, the energy is on the rates of several atomic bombs per minute. Tremendous amounts of energy are released by hurricanes. It's stunning how much energy that they produce. That said, the people who, it it surfaces after about every hurricane. Let's go out and use a nuclear weapon over the ocean to break up a hurricane. Can't be done. The nuclear weapon is a tiny fraction of the total amount of energy in a hurricane. Wait, a hurricane has more energy than a nuclear bomb? Oh, by many orders of magnitude, far more energy. And that's why when you get a really big hurricane like a Camille or an Andrew, people will describe it as looking like a war zone. Well, that's because a nuclear bomb and a hurricane have similar amounts of energy. Okay, what what wind speed do you need to have for a hurricane to be a Category 5, say, which is the highest level? Category 5 is over 150 miles an hour, and the peak gusts in hurricanes, primarily over the Pacific, is up around 200 miles an hour. And is the speed of the winds, is it is it uniform within that vortex? Uh It's uniform, more or less, but not the way it's measured. Let's assume the hurricane is moving westward at 20 miles an hour. And let's assume the maximum vortex speed is 150 miles an hour. Because you add the movement of the hurricane, the westward moving hurricane, on the north side, they would measure a wind speed of 170 miles an hour. The 150-mile-an-hour rotational vortex speed plus the 20-mile-an-hour movement. On the south side of the vortex, you would have to subtract the speed of movement. So that 150-mile-an-hour vortex circular wind would be measured as 130 miles an hour. You'd subtract the 20-mile-an-hour speed of movement as measured by a stationary wind measuring device. It still amounts to very powerful winds. Are hurricanes the most powerful weather phenomena on Earth? In terms of their total size, absolutely. In terms of total destruction, yes, but not in terms of strongest wind speed. We now know, thanks to the measurements of portable Doppler radars, that tornadoes can get peak winds up around 300 miles an hour, That's a lot more destructive per cubic foot, but they're so much smaller, the total energy is less. Hmm. You've written a lot about major storms, and of course you're a meteorologist. Have you ever been caught in a hurricane? Never been caught in a hurricane. Uh, However, when I was young, the remains of Hurricane Carla caused tremendous flash flooding around the Kansas City area where I was living and growing up at the time. And that made a big effect on me. That was the first major flash flood that I had ever been in. My interest in weather got started at the age of five when a tornado hit my neighborhood, destroyed my kindergarten, and killed 44 people. We did not have damage at our home, but we had debris in our yard. We were that close. And I've known from that day at the age of five, I wanted to be a meteorologist. Mike Smith, thank you so much for speaking to us. My pleasure. Mike Smith is a meteorologist and senior vice president of AccuWeather Enterprise Solutions. He's also the author of a book on the science of storms, Warnings, the true story of how science tamed the weather. up, a hurricane is a remarkable display of the energy of moving things, but have you seen bacteria swim across your tabletop? Uh, This guy can explain. I'm Bob Berman. I'm Admiral of the Galaxy. We're not sure what that title means, but it sounds admirable, and, and we like it. We'll hear about those bacteria and more from him next. Hey, we're moving right along on Big Picture Science.
From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, a tropical storm is quite obviously a tempest of motion. But there are some things on the move that might surprise you. In fact, the concept of sitting still is not just lost on two-year-olds, but on every atom in your body. The universe itself is a blur of activity. Are you sitting down? Zoom. How everything moves from atoms and galaxies to blizzards and bees is the title of astronomer Bob Berman's catalog of movement. Bob, I'm sitting here as still as I possibly can. In what ways am I, or maybe the room still a buzz with motion. Well, everything is moving no matter how still we try to sit. For example, dust in the air, which we can see if a little bit of a sunbeam shines into the room, uh, is settling at the rate of an inch an hour. Usually we don't see this because the slightest motion as we walk into or out of a room disturbs it. But if we leave it alone, leave everything alone, it keeps falling at an inch an hour. The blood in our veins is moving at about walking speed, three miles an hour. And all the atoms in our bodies are vibrating at about the speed of sound. Uh, what about this table here? I mean, is that in motion too? It looks pretty, pretty stable, pretty inert actually. Well, the table, of course, consists of atoms and molecules, and at room temperature, they move at about the speed of sound. And uh, in our bodies, if we have normal body temperature, they're somewhat faster than that, supersonic. And if we run a fever, our atoms jiggle about three miles an hour faster. So when we go to the doctor, we could say, oh, I had a high fever this morning. Or you could say, I'm not feeling well. My atoms are all moving three miles an hour faster than normal. And then he'd give you some aspirin and say, here, take this. This will slow them down. You've studied all different kinds of motion. And one of the most surprising things you discovered was the speed at which germs move. I, I, I never thought about germs moving except, you know, from, I don't know, a door handle to my hand. Uh, <laughs> do they move quickly? Are, are germs, you know, really, uh, you know, <laughs> racing around? Well, most types have a little tail-like structure called a flagella, and by whipping it, they can really get going. For example, the fastest fish, let's say a sailfish, moves 10 of its body lengths in a second, but a, a bacterium can move 100 in an extreme case, even 200 lengths per second. Now, at first, this doesn't seem very fast because it amounts to the width of a human hair in a second. But it adds up so that germs can cross a kitchen counter completely from one side to the other in about an hour. You've written that uh, scientists during the Renaissance were fascinated by uh, the invisible realm of speed, things that moved very quickly, too quickly, really, to study with the naked eye. Uh, like the flapping of an insect wing, for example. I, uh, how fast do things have to go before our eyes can't keep up? Well, it is said that the human flicker fusion threshold is about 20 blinks per second. And uh, to try to slow things up beyond that point, people have desperately tried waving their fingers in front of a fan, let's say, or in front of a hummingbird's wings, and try to achieve a kind of stroboscopic stop-action effect. And that was successful until the late 19th century when we actually developed means of photographically capturing these ultra-fast events. Some, such as insects, buzz around so quickly it looks like there's no possible way they can be almost subsonic. But a person can outrace any mosquito, and the only insect that can uh, reliably fly faster than we do are flies, especially houseflies, which unfortunately uh, there's no way you can outrace no matter how fast you run. I believe that there was a photographer up in San Francisco who played a, an important role in giving us the the technology that would allow us to see really fast stuff. Exactly. Edward Moybridge, the first person who actually generated motion pictures, uh, first of all, by capturing a horse galloping for the first time, settling and 
ancient argument, which is that do horses ever have all four of their feet off the ground at the same time? And people hotly debated that late into the 19th century, and it was he by setting up a series of cameras on tripods with little strings that the horse's legs would trip, actually for the first time created a kind of a movie uh, called Sally Gardner at a Gallop. And uh, that was the first time we could see uh, for sure that, yes, all, all four feet are off the ground. Okay, so that, that was, in fact, the, the beginning of motion pictures then. I mean, it wasn't quite the, the right technology, but the ideas were there. Exactly. So... Motion pictures typically run at like 24 frames per second. Uh, television runs at 30 frames per second. I mean, those, those are kinds of the speeds of our, you know, fast, what we consider fast cameras. But how fast can we make a camera? I mean, what sort of speeds can we measure with a camera today? Uh, thousands of frames per second, as long as we have enough light. Obviously, the shorter the exposure, uh, the less light is going to get into the image. And that's why you need... Uh, super brilliant lighting to begin to capture this kind of um, stop action sequences and by the way when we switched from silent films at 16 frames a second which people could definitely see flicker again the human flicker fusion threshold is about 20 frames a second so the old silent movies we could see them flicker the modern ones you're right it is 24 frames a second but it's actually 72 frames a second which is why we see no trace of flickering and that's because the same scene is shown three times in a row before it's changed to another scene so although there are 24 different pictures shown per second when you go to the movies there's actually 72 different images shown per second, and that's what removes the flickering. Well, we've talked about fast-moving critters like flies, and indeed, they're they're hard to catch. They move faster than I can change the direction of my SWAT. Do, do they have faster motion sensors than we do? I mean, are they better than 20 frames per second? Yes, yes, a fly can actually uh, flex its hind legs and jump out of the way in less than a 30th of a second. What's interesting is that there are any animals that can catch flies at all. We cannot, but monkeys, they can do it with ease. They seem to effortlessly just reach for a fly and pick it up uh, without difficulty. Cats are on the edge. Cats swat at flies, and sometimes they succeed, sometimes they fail. But chickens and monkeys, uh, they're at a different time frame. My goodness. Well, let's talk a little bit about things that move slowly. I mean, we know that the faster that something moves, the the more energy it has uh, and the more work, more damage, for that matter, it can do. I mean, asteroids coming in at 30,000 miles an hour, they can do a lot of damage. But glaciers, for example, they move slowly, and yet they've reshaped the Earth. How do they do that? Right. Well, of course, here you've got an awful lot of mass, and when you've got that much weight, it almost doesn't matter what the speed is, as long as you have the patience uh, to wait until the damage is done. There's going to be a lot of damage. Uh, molasses, for example, we have this expression, slow as molasses. But uh, about one century ago in Boston, when a six-story high tank of molasses broke one warm January day, this flood of molasses was unfortunately able to kill, uh, what was it, 18 or 20 people. Uh, so no matter how slow something moves, it can still be deadly. What, what are the slowest things that uh, you encountered in your study of uh, zooming objects? <laughs> well, stalactites and stalagmites and caves uh, only build up by about one inch in 500 years. Uh, on our own bodies, our fingernails and toenails, and our hair. Our hair grows about uh, six inches in the course of a year. Our nails uh, grow at only about um, one-sixth that rate with... Um, the longer fingers growing faster nails, fa uh, the fingernails also grow faster in males, faster in summer, faster in non-smokers, but they don't grow at all after you've died. That macabre myth probably came from the fact that uh, the skin gets pulled back uh, for the first few days after a person passes away. So it looks like the nails are getting longer, but they, they're actually not. Those are pretty much the slower things that uh, we encounter. You've been to visit a mountain observatory in the Andes where scientists can collect light from galaxies that are mind-boggling distances from us, rushing away from us. Uh, what, what have you found there? Well, the most exciting area of study, perhaps, 
lies at the greatest distances from us, where objects are receding faster and faster. Here in America, we like to use uh, miles still, so you'll excuse me if instead of speaking in the kilometers and the metric figures that the whole world uses scientifically, we often think in terms of miles. And if you do so, for every million light years of distance, uh, galaxies are receding 14 miles per second faster. And uh, But since the galaxies are not just millions but billions of light years, this adds up until you get to the rather magical distance of about 13 to 14 billion light years away, at which point galaxies recede at the speed of light. And beyond that, there's no possible way to see them. They're still there, and they're still expanding, but their light can't ever reach us. Well, not everything you've studied here is about speed, Bob, uh, but some of it's about how things move. There's a very well-known story that water in a drain or a toilet will swirl in opposite directions, depending on whether you're in the northern or in the southern hemisphere. Uh, This is called the Coriolis effect, and you've been to the equator where you witnessed a demonstration of this. Maybe you could briefly describe that. Well, down in Ecuador, in Quito, the uh, main city, which is directly on the equator, the government has set up demonstrations where tourists gather, water is poured into a basin, and one can see it swirling down in a clockwise fashion. Then the basin is dragged across this equator line that's painted on the ground. Oh, they have salsa music and celebrations. uh, the, The equator is a big deal down there. And on the other side of the line, the water swirls down in the opposite direction. Of course, tourists love this, but it's all fake. It's all a hoax because the way they do it is they simply use the bucket that they fill the basin with, uh, pour it in at one angle, when it's on one side of the equator, and they deliberately pour the water in from a different direction. So there's residual currents, and that's what causes the water to swirl down the basin in different directions. Uh, You simply need a much larger body of either air or water to see the Coriolis effect in action. But we do see it at least on our uh, weather channel, don't we? Oh, we do. When it comes to low-pressure systems or hurricanes or even a uh, baseball hit in a park, if the batter is facing north or south, the ball will curve a little bit to the right, about an inch, an inch and a half to the right, so that sometimes a ball will go uh, foul when otherwise it would have been a home run, thanks to the Coriolis effect. Well, Bob, I, I do have to ask you, do you suffer from motion sickness? Fortunately, I don't. Being a uh, pilot myself, uh, I'm, I'm glad I don't, because otherwise uh, it would set a bad example for, for my passengers. Thanks, Bob Berman. And can we ask you back at the end of the show for a few more questions about motion? Is that okay? Oh, I would love it. I'd be honored. Bob Berman is an astronomer, and he's the author of Zoom, How Everything Moves from Atoms and Galaxies to Blizzards and Bees. Well, what he doesn't talk about is whether or not your countertop needs to be wet for those bacteria to swim across it. Yeah, well, I would think it would have to be. Otherwise, it gets stuck in the grooves, the microscopic grooves, and you just get a little sticky mess there. You'd probably never even notice. So we're always in motion. Hang on, Tom. I'll run over with those documents as soon as I drop off my laundry. Pick up my cat, stop by the bakery, rush to the bank, hop on a bus, jog my memory, lower my expectations, raise my hopes, jump to conclusions, fly off the handle, hurry my point home, and sneak in some me time. Then I'll be right over. We feel pretty certain we know how to describe things in motion. Trains and rockets are fast, snails and glaciers are slow, and so on. But in 1905, Albert Einstein pointed out something kind of disturbing, at least it was at the time all motion is relative. In other words, you might be traveling in a train at 60 miles per hour, but depending on what the observer is doing, you could just as well be standing still. Okay, so here's the problem. You know, you're sitting in a train pulling out of the station, you look out the window, and you see this station platform moving behind you. And what does your brain tell you? Oh, that station's moving. No, you figure I'm moving, right? But how could you tell? How could you tell whether you're moving or whether the station platform is sliding behind you? Well, it turns out there's no experiment you can do that will tell you. 
right? You're sitting in a box going through space. There's no way. It's a closed box. There's no way for you to know how fast you're going if you're going at a, you know, constant speed. But you feel the train rumble, so you know that you're moving. You might know that you're moving because of the rumble, but on the other hand, I could put you in a box that wasn't in a train and pipe in some rumble music, and you you wouldn't know, all right? So there's no physics experiment that you can do. Now, that was one thing. So that's what we mean when we say all motion is relative. There's no place that's completely fixed and stopped, and we'll say all speedometers are calibrated with respect to that. But there was something else that came up before Einstein developed his special theory of relativity in 1905 that was really, really remarkable, and that was some experiments that had been done a few years earlier showed that the speed of light is always the same. You can measure it coming out of a flashlight, and, you know, it's a certain speed. It's fast, but it's a certain speed. Now you, you stand on a, you know, on a jet and you shine the flashlight out the front, the speed of light doesn't get faster. It's always the same. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're on that jet or you're measuring it from an asteroid that's flying by the jet. The speed of light is always the same. You mean you think it would be going faster because you're on a jet and right. you're holding this flashlight, and so it'll be the speed of light plus the speed of the jet or the speed of the asteroid, but that's not the case. Exactly. That's what you would say, and that's what Isaac Newton would have said, but it turns out not to be right. And so Einstein figured out, well, the only way to fix that problem is to say that time depends on motion, that motion and time are connected in some weird way. Let's put you back on that jet, and instead of shining a flashlight at the front of the cockpit, you know, you just have a watch there. And you're looking at your watch, and it's ticking away second by second. Everything's just normal from your point of view. And somebody on the asteroid going by, they look through the window, they see your watch, and they say, you know, Bob, for some reason, her watch is running slowly. And it is. Is that because the jet is moving more slowly than the asteroid is? It's just that it's moving with respect to the asteroid. It's not still with respect to the asteroid. The speed of the clock depends on how fast the clock is moving relative to you. That's weird. It's extremely strange. And what it means, by the way, is that when you get on the freeway and drive around all day, you actually age a little bit more slowly than everybody you left at home. So what this says is that motion is relative, but time is also relative? Yeah, time is malleable. You know, in Isaac Newton's day, he just assumed that there was, you know, some, if you will, super-duper uber clock somewhere just clicking off. You know, and it was the same throughout the universe, and it didn't matter whether you're going fast, slow, or not going at all. Not true. Time is relative just the way space is. Well, you know, it's all very confusing. Okay, so I'll just say it again. Everything is in motion. We've heard that all motion is relative, too. Depending on your point of view, moving things might appear to be standing still when other people think they're moving, and it also affects time. But there is another way to measure motion, by the way, and that's with a thermometer. Coming up, what happens to atoms if the temperature drops to the chilly voids of the cosmos and the fate of the universe if all motion were to stop? That's next, and it seems we are moving right along on Big Picture Science. Depending on your point of view. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we have all kinds of motion, and we heard that even if you stand perfectly still, The molecules and the atoms of your body are still bumping around, still moving. But if you lower their temperature, they slow down. Temperature is really a measure of how quickly atoms are moving. So if you cool an object enough, then would all the molecules and atoms come to a full stop? Well, the temperature at which this would supposedly happen is called absolute zero, 500 degrees below room temperature. So absolute zero, the lowest energy state we could ever hope to see. Shoot, there goes the remote. Now I gotta get up off the couch and pick it up. Now maybe I don't have to, 
if I stick my gum on the end of this empty bag of pretzels, maybe I can snag it. Oh, it worked with that French fry yesterday. Okay, maybe it's the second lowest energy state possible, but absolute zero is more than just a cool idea. Scientists have been trying to lower the temperature of matter, mostly gases, to as close to this coldest temp possible for years. It's a research race to the bottom, so to speak. So how close have they come? And what happens to the behavior of matter when it experiences the ultimate chill? Bill Phillips, a Nobel Prize-winning physicist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, has slowed down atoms using lasers, something that Victorian-era scientists would like to have done. Bill, certainly one of the great triumphs of 19th century science was connecting heat to motion. Now, how is it that temperature is all about stuff that moves? Well, in a certain sense, that is exactly what we mean by temperature. The hotter something is, the faster its constituents, the atoms and molecules that make it up, are moving, and the colder something is, the slower they are moving. In fact, motion is connected to energy. We have something called kinetic energy, that is, the energy of motion. And temperature is simply a measure of that kinetic energy of motion. Okay, so once scientists recognize that a thermometer is, if you will, just a speedometer, they must have sensed that there, there, there must be a zero somewhere in that dial. Indeed, the understanding that temperature is related to motion is an idea that leads immediately to the idea that there must be a lowest possible temperature. Because after all, if slower means colder, the slowest you can go is stopped, so therefore there must be a lowest temperature. Well, how cold would that be? I mean, in, in degrees, how cold is stop? Well, if we measure in the Celsius temperature scale, then absolute zero is defined to be 273.15 degrees below zero. I think that works out to about minus 460 degrees Fahrenheit. I know this is a crazy idea, but what would it feel like? What would happen to my body? I, I suppose I wouldn't feel anything. If I walked into a meat locker set at absolute zero or close there too? Well, if you did, and in a certain sense I think this is completely the wrong kind of question to be asking about absolute zero, but if you could create something held at close to absolute zero, we can't get to absolute zero, what would happen would be that slowly heat would transfer from your body to whatever refrigerator was keeping this place at absolute zero, and pretty soon your skin would, uh, would freeze, the interior of your body would lose heat, you would lose consciousness, and uh, your body functions would stop. But none of these things are the interesting things about what happens when you get to absolute zero. Those physiological things would happen at temperatures much, much higher than absolute zero. The things that are interesting are the things that happen to inorganic materials at temperatures close to absolute zero. The big question, have scientists there at the National Institute of Standards and Technology reached absolute zero in the lab or anything close to it? How, how close have you come? So we have come within approximately one billionth of a degree of absolute zero. So we specify our temperatures as measured up from absolute zero. This is a temperature scale that we call the Kelvin scale, where zero on the Kelvin scale is absolute zero, and the degrees are the same as the degrees in the Celsius scale. We call them Kelvins. Well, I understand that you and your colleagues won a Nobel Prize in 1997 using laser light to cool things down. How does that work? Yeah, well, cooling something with a laser sounds ridiculous because usually you would expect that if you shine light on something, it would get hot. But remembering that heat is all about motion and also realizing that light can push on stuff, we figured out ways of pushing on the atoms that make up a gas in such a way as to make them slow down. If they slow down, that means they're colder. And we got the temperatures below one millionth of a degree above absolute zero by laser cooling. But that was just a start. Well, what's the finish? How, how much closer have you gotten? You got down to a billionth. That sounds like you got a thousand times farther down. Well, that's exactly right. Well, we use a relatively old and rather mundane process called evaporation. When your coffee is too hot, 
what do you do? You blow on it. What you're doing is you're encouraging the evaporation of water from the, uh, the coffee. What's happening is that the most energetic of the water molecules are leaving. That means that what's left behind has a lower average energy and therefore a lower temperature. We do exactly the same thing with our atoms, except we don't keep it in a coffee cup. We keep it in what we call a magnetic trap, a magnetic bottle for atoms, and we allow the most energetic of them to escape. What's left behind is less energetic and therefore colder. But in order to get colder and colder, we have to throw away more and more of the atoms. And before we get to absolute zero, we would be at zero atoms. So we're never going to get to absolute zero that way, but we can get really, really cold. How do you know, Bill, how cold you've gotten? I mean, wouldn't any thermometer you stuck into this material, wouldn't that uh, just warm it up? Exactly. So we determine how cold it is by coming back exactly to what we talked about at the very beginning, that temperature is about motion. We release our atoms from their magnetic bottle, and, and we see how far they go in a certain length of time. And that tells us how hot they are. A lot of people will have heard that at very low temperatures, materials change their properties. Can you tell me what happens? I mean, why is a blob of matter different when the atoms aren't moving quite as fast? Well, certain materials lose their electrical resistivity. This is called superconductivity. That is, there are certain materials that when you cool them down to usually quite low temperatures, lose their electrical resistance. This is amazing because almost everything has some resistance to electrical current, but these superconductors have no resistance. But there's only a few kinds of materials that do that, and it typically happens at quite low temperatures. And when I say quite low, I mean a few degrees above absolute zero. Remember, this is a billion times hotter than the kinds of temperatures we achieve in our laboratory. There's also something called a Bose-Einstein condensate. Now, that, that's, a, that's a pretty technical term, but apparently refers to a state of matter uh, when it's very, very cold. Can, can you briefly describe what that might be? Yeah. Here's the deal. Every particle behaves like a wave. This is one of the insights that quantum mechanics has given us. And the slower the particle goes, let's say an atom, the slower it goes, the longer the wavelength is associated with it. Now imagine you've got a gas that has a certain density of particles. So that means there's a certain average distance between the particles. And those particles behave like waves. When you get the temperature so low that the particles are moving so slowly that the wavelength associated with those particles is approximately equal to the distance between those particles, then you have this amazing thing that happens where a large fraction of the atoms essentially stop moving. And that's what we call Bose condensate, is that fraction of the atoms that are essentially not moving because they have achieved this condition where the distance between them is comparable to the wavelength and they can't tell themselves apart from their partners. They don't know what to do with themselves, and so they all go into the lowest possible energy state. So they lose their personality, if you will. But, yeah. but if I had a blob of this stuff on my desk here, I mean, would it, would it behave any differently than a blob of something else? Yes. So first of all, you wouldn't have a blob on your desk. You'd have it in a, a magnetic bottle or in a, in a laser bottle. And the way in which it would behave differently is rather dramatic. It would be what we call a superfluid. That is, it would flow without any resistance. When we have water flow through a hose, we have to have pressure behind it to keep it moving because otherwise the friction of the water with the hose would cause the water to slow down. So is absolute zero kind of like the speed of light? I mean, maybe you could get a rocket in principle to 99% of the speed of light, but never 100%. Can we in principle ever slow all motion down to zero? The answer to that question has two important features. One is, no, we can't get to absolute zero. And secondly, even if we did, the motion wouldn't stop. That may be a little bit surprising considering the conversation we've been having, that absolute zero is about minimizing the motion and the, and the slowest you can go is stopped. But in fact, under any practical circumstances, you're not even allowed to be stopped. And it's because of quantum mechanics and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle.
So in fact, you can't reach that zero on the speedometer dial even in principle. It's not a technology problem. This is fundamental. Yes, but there's two pieces there. One is that you can't get to absolute zero, and the other is that even if you did, you still wouldn't be stopped. Those are two separate things. <laughs> and, and frustrating, I must say. Bill Phillips, thank you so very much for speaking with us today. You're very welcome. Bill Phillips is a physicist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology and the University of Maryland and a 1997 Nobel Prize winner. Well, he says that even if you could get atoms down to the temperature of absolute zero, they wouldn't be stopped because of quantum mechanics and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Yeah, that's because in the end... These little particles, which you think of as marbles that you really could stop, they're a little bit fuzzy because of their wave nature, which he talked about. And that just means if you know where they are, you don't quite know everything about their motion. There's always some residual jitter. And that's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. That's a consequence of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. I'm pretty certain of that. I was just going to say, are you sure about that? <laughs> okay, so you can't stop the movement of atoms enough to get down to absolute zero, but you can get really, really close and very, very cold. But you can't stop motion completely. But what about the opposite end of speed, the speed of light? If we look at our universe, we know it's expanding. So if you observe a galaxy 10 million light years away, maybe it's moving 1,000 miles a second away from you. Then you look at another galaxy that's 20 million light years away. It's moving 2,000 miles a second away from you. And the farther away you look, the faster they're moving away. So if there's no end to the universe... Won't there be galaxies that are moving away from us faster than the speed of light? Well, yes and no. But Einstein said that nothing can go faster than the speed of light, so what's going on? Well, once again, cosmology confounds us. Luckily, we have the help of Bob Berman. We spoke with the astronomer earlier about how things move, and we're bringing him back to explain this apparent puzzle. So, Bob, now everything we've learned here about motion, we have a few more questions about what it all means in the larger scale, the cosmological scale. Do you mind if we run these by you? No, no, I'd love it. Thank you. Okay. Well, will the motion in the universe ever reach a limit? I mean, will the universe, which is now not only expanding, but the expansion is accelerating, is it going to reach infinitely fast speeds? Seth, this just keeps getting weirder and weirder. Uh, almost two years ago, a team at Berkeley surveying 900,000 galaxies found that to the limit of what we can observe, there's no curvature of space at all. So this flat topology suggests that space keeps going on and on and on. It's much bigger than we thought the universe was, and many cosmologists think it's infinite. Well, if it's infinite in extent, then it's infinite in content, too. And the galaxies just keep getting faster and faster the farther they are. So, no, light speed is not the limit. There are galaxies that are rushing away from us a million times faster than the speed of light, a billion times faster than the speed of light, and even one universe faster each second. So is there a limit at all to it? Uh, So far, we don't know of any. But Al Einstein would have told uh, anyone who listened, look, you can't move faster than the speed of light. How can, how can something move, you know, hundreds of, of millions of light years per second? I mean, how can, they, how can that happen? Uh, the escape clause is that we don't really violate uh, relativity because Einstein said you can't accelerate anything faster than the speed of light. If you start off slower than the speed of light, you can't ever reach a point where it's faster than it. But here, we don't have the objects actually accelerating on their own. Rather, the empty space between us and them is what's inflating. The The galaxies are just hanging out uh, like like Scrabble players waiting for a vowel. They're not... They're, they're not moving much at all. So there's no violation of Einstein. So what you're saying is the galaxies are just more or less sitting there. Uh, it's just that the space is expanding. That, that A very bizarre concept, but that space is getting bigger. And, uh, and, and that's what makes the farther galaxies look like they're moving away from us. Exactly. Uh, how, how do scientists know that? How do you measure such a thing? Well, one of the bits of evidence that space actually is not just sheer emptiness is that we found since 1949, the Casimir effect, that uh, it has power, it has force, and an empty mayonnaise jar worth of empty space uh, has enough 
power energy in it to boil away the Pacific Ocean in one second. Plus, uh, particles, subatomic particles, pop in and out of this empty space and, and then subside again. So there's something very suspicious about this uh, empty space that's inflating, something that we have not yet fully understood. What about the deep future? I mean, the universe will continue to expand. The universe will continue to stretch. It'll become dark. It'll become cold. That sounds like a place with very little zoom. Yes, it's a, a pessimistic view. It's a depressing view that everything will expand until all the material that produces new stars and galaxies goes out and the, the universe just becomes cold and dark. And uh, our vantage point, even if there were humans, then we'd see nothing alive, no light, no, no further creation of the universe. But we don't know what the future will be. For all we know, the expansion of the universe caused by this mysterious dark energy that we know nothing about may reverse itself over time and perhaps the universe then collapses only to re-expand maybe it's like the old hindu legend of the breaths of brahma where the universe pulses in and out oscillates perhaps once every 200 billion years if so then the ancient greeks were right motion had no beginning and will never cease bob berman thank you so very much for speaking with us the pleasure is mine thanks seth Bob Berman writes about astronomy, and he's the author of Zoom, How Everything Moves from Atoms and Galaxies to Blizzards and Bees. So we began with the story of hurricanes, but that's movement on a big scale. But there's also movement that defines the very existence of things. Yes, the microscopic movement of atoms and molecules. But then again, you know, even that is connected with big things, because in one scenario for the future of the universe, when it all continues to expand... And everything in it becomes so slow in its motions, it becomes as cold as that experiment in Bill Phillips' lab. And then there is the optimistic end of the universe and rebirth is that it doesn't quite stop that motion and it starts up again and we have a new universe. You're always looking at the half-full side. <laughs> well, thanks to our fast-moving production team, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also, support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Whose ears have been attuned to moving right along. And if they need even more Big Picture Science action, we suggest that you move them onto our archive, where you'll find more Big Picture Science on our website, bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because you like the idea of not moving to new technology, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Well, we promise to steal ourselves and read them all. Especially the praise. <laughs> right, us at bigpicturescience at seti.org. I just don't feel as if this relationship is going anywhere. It's not expanding. <laughs> well, just not hot enough, I guess. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.